This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is Walter Crottenden, who will weave together some of the latest archaeological evidence with cutting-edge astronomy to reveal a history of the world that finally fits with myth, folklore, and the archaeological record. We will explore some of the most interesting aspects of a once advanced civilization that covered the Earth. It is really about what happens to the Earth and consciousness as our solar system moves through space in the mysterious motion known as the precession of the equinox. Walter Crottenden will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full show, become a Veritas member. Just go to our website, veritasshow.com, click on the subscribe button, and receive instant access. Don't wait any longer. For only $7.95 per month, you can listen to all of our material, hundreds of hours, 
in CD audio quality and take Veritas with you wherever you go. Subscribe today and visit the Veritas store where you can purchase our 8GB USB drives with Seasons 1 or 2 with bonus material, MMS, and all of our Veritas items, shirts, hats, and more. They're all here. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and also join me on Facebook. And now, get ready to change your whole view of life as a human on planet Earth. Tonight, mythology becomes science, and evolution is refuted by referencing both scientific observation and ancient texts from religions and cultures around the world. We will discuss a theory thousands of years old about the way our Earth and Sun move through cycles longer than we had thought to study in recent history and how this affects the rise and fall of civilizations and human consciousness in great cycles. This theory suggests that there were societies of people living thousands of years ago who would have been as advanced as we are or even more so and that we are on the upswing of the cycle and moving into a more advanced age ourselves. Join me as we explore this and much more with Walter Cruttenden, who's coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. This is Michael Cremo, and you are listening to Veritas Radio.
Walter Cruttenden is an amateur theoretical archaeoastronomer and author of the Binary Theory of Precession. As executive director of the Binary Research Institute, he researches the celestial mechanics of the precession of the equinox, as well as myth and folklore related to this phenomenon. He is the writer and producer of The Great Year, a PBS broadcast documentary film narrated by James Earl Jones that explores evidence of astronomical cycles of time known to cultures throughout the ancient world. Most recently, Cruttenden wrote Lost Star of Myth and Time, a book that provides an alternative view of history based on the solar system's motion through space. It is his belief that the myth and folklore depicting a repeating cycle of golden ages and dark ages may have a basis in fact due to the alternating stellar forces that affect Earth as our solar system moves in a 24,000-year binary or dual star orbit. He is the organizer of the 2011 seventh annual conference of procession and ancient knowledge to be held in sedona arizona from september the 30th through october the 2nd 2011. i will be in attendance and i hope you can make it too for more information visit cpac online that's c-p-a-k online.com and we also have a banner on our website what we'll be discussing tonight will rattle some of your views and will give you new ways of looking at ancient ideas and directly from Newport Beach, California, one of my favorite spots. I would like to introduce, for the first time on Veritas, Walter Cruttenden. Hello, Mr. Cruttenden, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hey, I'm terrific, Mel. It's a pleasure to be on the show. It's my pleasure. May I call you Walter? Please do, yeah. Thank you. Well, Walter, I'm always curious about what motivates great research like you, uh, Graham Hancock, Michael Cremo, John Major Jenkins, to look outside the box. First, give us some background of yourself, so that those who don't know who you are know exactly how you became the researcher you are today. Happy to. Um, this idea that uh, history may not be exactly as it is taught in the textbooks uh, first occurred to me when I was a boy, really, maybe the eighth grade, something like that. I'd been reading a lot of history and uh a lot about cultures that existed prior to the Dark Ages, uh, Mesopotamia, Sumer, Akkad, Babylon, Harappa, Mohenjo-Daro, places like this, uh, you know, Egypt, where they seem to have a knowledge of astronomy, mathematics, uh, physics. Obviously, they could build very grand structures, and they, they all disappeared. They went away. As a matter of fact, they almost became nomadic societies uh, by the time of the Dark Ages. And and yet in school, they, they taught me that everything's pretty linear. If, if uh, something came before us, then it must be more primitive. And so I had a hard time, um, you know, making sense out of what I was reading about history uh, these different civilizations that had gone downhill prior to the Dark Ages and sort of the the main teaching in school. And consequently, uh, it was in the back of my mind for a few decades until I came across the uh, writings of uh, an Indian astronomer by the name of Swami Sri Yukteswar. And uh, he's really a a saint or a sage, that sort of thing. And he was talking about uh, uh, life in general and, and self-realization, things like this. But he was he made the point that 
we're still at a fairly low age, and that's why we we can't understand a lot of uh, higher age thoughts, some of the things that are hinted at in myth and folklore. And uh, then he had just one sentence in there and said, this is because our solar system goes around you know, another star, and when we're far away, it's sort of like the winter of the great year, if you will. That's what you call this cycle. And when we're closer, it's, you know, it's a high age. And so he said it works just like the seasons of the year, but on a much longer scale. And that was the first time, Mel, that I'd really read anything that might give a cause for what I saw as declining ages prior to the dark ages. And uh, from there on, you know, the last 20 years I've been studying this, uh, I had been in the uh, investment banking industry and had a couple of pretty large and successful firms with lots of researchers uh, working for me. So I was used to doing intensive research and uh, I just uh, sold those firms uh, around the year 2000 or so and since then went full-time into the research and investigation of this idea that history might be cyclical, uh, just as taught by the myth and folklore of so many cultures. It seems that there's a common denominator with people like you, Graham Hancock, Robert Bouval, and some of the others. Something happens along the way, perhaps something that you found out, and you turn on that switch, and it seems that you can never turn it off, and now you dedicate your full time uh, into this. But the Western society wants us to believe the ancient ones were soulless savages with no intellect at all. But right from the beginning, Walter, I want to ask you a question that I'm sure it's, it's in most of my listeners' mind, and we'll be exploring it throughout the show. How can we account for the near total loss of knowledge about the last ages? What drives a civilization into literal dust? Well, that's a good question because I don't think it's any one factor. Uh, I think there is this macro influence uh, that drives the rise and fall of the ages, and we can get into the details of that a little bit later. Uh, And it works similar to the way that the two smaller motions of the Earth work. So if you take the diurnal motion of the Earth, the Earth spins on its axis, Right. When we turn towards the sun, we're conscious, we're awake, we're active, uh, life is busy. And when we turn away from the sun, not only does you know photosynthesis uh, stop to occur and all sorts of activity, but it actually changes our consciousness. We go from a conscious state to a subconscious because our bodies are adapted uh, to you know this lack. When when we get a lack of electromagnetic spectrum of the sun, we Uh, we go to sleep. (laughs) And likewise, the second motion of the Earth, when the uh, hemisphere that is uh, leaning towards the sun, uh, you know, as the northern hemisphere is in the summer, gets that extra bit of light. Uh, Plants spring out of the ground, bloom, give their fruit, you know, things come out of hibernation. There's There's massive spawning and migrations and all this activity takes place. And then when we turn away from the sun in our orbit, everything starts to slow down. So too then, Mel, the the third uh, cycle that's even longer, the cycle of the great year that uh, over 30 ancient cultures hinted at, I believe has a very similar cause, that it's, 
it's sort of a waxing and waning of celestial light. But whereas in the first two, it's the light of our closest star, the sun, in the third motion, uh, which we call the procession of the equinox, it is probably, uh, you know, the effects of uh, another star, another point in space uh, that's having an effect on us there. So, so the first part of that question then is answered by there's this great macro effect that goes on. And it kind of reminds me of uh, uh, there's a famous anthropologist, Jared Diamond. He wrote a book called Guns, Germs and Steel. And he said that, you know, if you look around the earth and history over the last few thousand years, you see the the tribes that are successful, the civilizations that work, uh, materially speaking, are the ones that have the guns, the germs, the bad germs and the steel. Uh, and the ones uh, that didn't work so well, you know, didn't have these advantages and they tend to stay in a, a less successful state. Well, that that's great to explain changes on the earth, but it doesn't doesn't change the uh, this the sort of macro frame that that uh, so many cultures, uh, at least 40 cultures that I could trace, uh, seem to decline prior to the Dark Ages and then advance since that time. And so there's there's a multiplicity of factors that goes on. There's a macro effect. And then there's little minor effects that uh, are occurring, you know, just due to geography and different advantages here on Earth. You wrote a great article called Ancient Cosmology, a Map of the Future. And I, in it, there's a graphic that shows the Yugas, uh, the bronze, silver, and it goes to gold. Then gold again, silver and bronze, almost as if you're going up and then you're going down again. Um, is this where you see exactly where are we now? Are we in the upward slope or downward slope? Uh, well, we're in the upward slope. Uh, you know, clearly consciousness is expanding. If you just look at our uh, our technology, uh, you know, which is a manifestation of our cleverness, uh, we're certainly able to build and make a whole bunch of things that we couldn't do uh you know, 500 years ago, you know, electricity, magnetism, understanding of biology, uh, physics, uh, you know, atomic structures, things like this, you know, not to mention the whole, you and I are talking right now over the internet, things like that. Right. Just stuff that didn't exist. Also, if you look at lifespans, you know, they're twice what they were uh, in the depths of the dark ages or, um, or in the political situation, 500 years ago, every nation on war was at one, was at war with one another. Every nation on earth, and even many counties and dukies were at war with one another. And uh, you know, war hasn't completely died out, but it's really just a minority of nations now that are fighting compared to the massive numbers that were. And medicine, everything else. So. So there is uh, uh, evidence that we're in a sort of an expanding age of consciousness that probably bottomed out, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred years ago. The the Indians actually put the bottom point at uh, about 500 A.D., 499 to be exact. And uh, this 
Yes, it does go through this graduation. Uh, the Greeks used the iron, bronze, silver, and golden age to depict the the sort of the seasons, if, if you will, of how consciousness expands. And they would call it, uh, they had other names for it too. They called the lowest one the age of man, when mankind just, you know, thinks and believes the only thing that's real is that which you can touch and and see and um, you know consume and then the bronze age they would call the age of the hero when mankind begins to discover finer forces electricity magnetism these sorts of things and then the the ages that are above us which the Greeks called the age of the demigods and the age of the gods which we can hardly even imagine although we can get some tidbits from myth and folklore and then, yes, just like the seasons, you know, you don't instantly go from summer to the dead of winter. Uh, things slowly go back down again where mankind loses knowledge. And that's what seems to be happening if you look at that few thousand years before the Dark Ages, where we have a good historical record. When uh, Mesopotamia, Sumer, Akkad, they're, they're sort of falling apart, Babylon, and then nothing <laughs> And same thing with Egypt and elsewhere around the world. You mentioned something very interesting, the manifestation of our cleverness and our technology. And let me add to this, there is an assumption that is made about primitive man, that, that he is less intelligent than modern man. Well, we all remember the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami. There were military people, educated people, all with computers, radios, and cell phones. Thousands perished. But there were tribes of natives, folks, the Ongi and the Jarawa, about 400 people in total. They were in direct path of the tsunami. They were uh, naturalistic tribes and had already moved to higher ground 48 hours in advance. Only one single native was killed, a handicapped person who was missed in the evacuation. Conclusion, in my opinion, Walter, those in attunement with nature fared vastly better that technology-enabled man. Shouldn't we be learning the knowledge passed down to these tribes and we still don't even understand it? Very great story, Mel. Yeah, I had read about a couple of those tribes, uh, one that was on land where they, they, they just picked up these little tiny signs and were able to uh, figure that something big was up. I, I'm still not sure we have a complete explanation for it. I guess their wise men were the ones that told them and then another one was a tribe that lives mostly at sea. And they had noticed that uh, the lobsters started disappearing. You know, animals that have these great senses. So they're watching the animals. Yeah. Good. And they knew t to get out of there. And uh, they didn't know exactly what was going to happen. But they, they knew that they'd be wise if they, <laughs> if they uh, acted in tune with nature like the animals did. And so, yeah, I don't. You know, we don't know exactly how they knew, what they knew, but they knew something important, and therefore we should really uh, study that. You know, not just dismiss this as, uh, oh, the luck of a primitive tribe. Right. Uh, I, I agree with you, Mel. It's very important, and it's uh, it's going to make a great anthropological study someday. So instead of uh, looking at a cell phone, the radio, or the internet, maybe we should start looking at the the animals or the dogs, the non-domesticated dogs, because domesticated dogs seem to lose that, that sixth sense that was given to them by nature. But during the next down cycle, will we lose all knowledge of the coming golden age 
and we will be able to preserve the evidence better this time around, or will mankind experience another near blackout? Uh, there's actually cycles within cycles, and if you study this stuff, there's supposed to be an even bigger motion. Instead of it's just our solar system going around our uh, another star, uh, the whole binary system supposedly goes around some stellar neighborhood. Maybe it's around the center of the galaxy. I don't know, but uh, it just so happened that in the recent cycle, according to these Indian teachings, you know, much of this has to be really uh, uh, vetted and, and figured out from a scientific standpoint. According to these Indians, we were in the the low cycle, not only of the binary motion, but of this greater cycle. So it's probably more dramatic than uh, than some of these others. So really, history is a you know a series of spirals. Uh, rather than absolute up and downs, if you will. And um, so uh, there, there's evidence that, uh, you know, some cultures did hang on to some knowledge. Uh, for example, if you look at some, uh, some Vedic traditions, they passed some of the, uh, the scripture, myth and folklore down through um, uh, reciting verses exactly as they were. Same thing occurred in some of the, the Nordic uh, countries. Uh, the oral tradition. Exactly, yeah. And where they could take people from opposite sides of the country, bring them together, have them uh, recite you know, this, the, the famous national myth, and they would say it word for word without ever having you know, known each other or, or, or you know, met each other. And they used completely different dialects and this sort of thing. So uh, there's that, that there are certain ways that information has been stored so we don't completely lose it. And I think that's even the case in some of the megalithic structures, that there's information uh, that, you know, perhaps we haven't completely figured out yet. Uh, and so maybe it's not all as lost as we think it is. Well, speaking of something lost, I learned something while doing research for this show, Walter. There's a common mistake made by many, including astrologers. They say there are 12 constellations in the zodiac, but there are 13. The 13th constellation is called Ophic of How do you call it? Ophiuchus. Uh, why isn't this 13th constellation ever mentioned? Well, uh... There's obviously there's hundreds of constellations, but you're talking about the ones that lie or touch the ecliptic. Yes, correct. And uh, you're right. I, I, I forget how you pronounce it too, Osiphius or something like that. Uh, but anyway, uh, it does uh, touch the uh, ecliptic, although not as much as the other twelve. And uh, twelve. Uh, is being used uh, because it has so many correlations. Uh, just like we have 12 numbers on the clock, if you will, so the ancients used the 12 uh, major zodiac signs along the ecliptic as, as if you will, numbers of where we are in the great year. And uh, so you're, you're right, uh, but uh, for timekeeping purposes, you, you have to agree on a specific number. And by the way, it's Ophiuchus, for those who wonder what the 13th constellation is. But you say that our star, the sun, has a partner. And I've heard this a lot lately, which makes us a binary star. Has today's astronomy found 
this star? And if not, could it be a non-luminous star, say a brown dwarf? Well, so the first part of the answer there is that uh, no major astronomers uh, do not agree that our sun has a partner. Uh, there are some very good ones that happen to be looking for a companion star. Um, you know, uh, Richard Muller at uh, UC Berkeley is looking because he thinks that it might be responsible for occasional uh, extinction events like dinosaurs and things like that. Uh, Whitmire and Matisse at the University of Louisiana are looking because they think it might uh, have something to do with the sheer edge of the uh, Kuiper belt. You know, when right. we go, go by another star, it would sort of trim it off from time to time. Um, and uh, But the very best astronomer looking right now is a, a fellow by the name of Mike Brown, and he's, uh, he's world famous at Caltech. He's famous because he's the guy that is responsible for killing Pluto. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so he found something even bigger than Pluto and uh, a couple others since. And uh, one of those is uh, called Sedna. And Sedna has such an unusual orbit. It's off-plane like Pluto, uh, but very, very elongated, 12,000-year uh, periodicity. That He says, you know, this is crazy. You cannot just have orbits out there for no reason. I mean, you look at all the close-by planets, they're obviously influenced by the sun, you know. Uh, but these farther ones out have to be influenced by something else. So he says... You have to have something out there. So he and his team are are looking for uh, possibly a, a dark companion or a tenth planet or big some big mass. You know, there's a lot of stuff we really don't know out there. Like we we really don't know what dark matter is yet. So they're looking, but uh, quite frankly, you know, we're not very far along there uh, as far as finding a physical object. Now the question. The question I go ahead. Sorry, uh, if I can just just mention is in there's a lot of uh, incidental evidence that something has to be there because of the precession studies and and the way spacecraft operate and things like this. And so that points to the fact that something must be there and we have to look. Well, there's always the concept of dark matter, matter, but the question always in my mind, why does the scientific community continue to evade any debate on these theories that, are, that, that were widely researched by European explorers and even thinkers hundreds of years ago, but the, the, they were just forgotten once again? You know, I, I, I sure I agree with you that some uh, scientists are very myopic and and don't want to change a lot but but uh even that is changing if you will i think more and more people are more open-minded uh you know especially with google there's so many independent researchers out there now that are sort of putting together pieces from completely different fields um yeah we we did uh, sort of science as an industry with the whole peer review process uh you know, is very disciplined and very slow to change. Uh, but there's some good in that, too. You know, we don't quickly adopt wacky ideas. You know, it takes takes some time to uh, change these models. And so I, I'm okay with uh, the fact that, you know, it's taking a while and it's going to take an overwhelming amount of uh, 
proof to uh, before sort of mainstream, if you will, uh, realizes that our solar system might be moving at a pretty high rate of speed, curving through space around some other object. It's going to be it, it's going to be with people like you pushing forward this knowledge. I remember Michael Cremo recently told me he went to I think it was Europe or Russia. He went to do a presentation at a major university, and at the last minute, they canceled it. And uh, the the students found out, and they moved the conference elsewhere, and they had more than three times the number of people that were going to be in attendance at the university because they just said, wait a minute, if they're canceling this, it must be something interesting. So more and more people are, are becoming open-minded, and institutions are, are finally catching up that there, there may be information out there and they can't continue being arrogant enough to say there's no other explanation. But but speaking of light, I've said it this for a, a few shows now that our DNA operates like miniature laser beams. And perhaps the sun has an effect. Those photons that are coming in perhaps may be altering. Can light affect our bodies, our mind, and, and our consciousness? Oh, well, we know it affects us. Uh, obviously, our bodies are adapted to it, uh, you know, in sleep and waking. Uh, there's uh, babies uh, that are born jaundiced, you know, sort of orange uh, looking, and you, you cure them by exposing them ultraviolet. to ultraviolet light, right? Yeah. There's, uh, there's different types of depression. Uh, one is called SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, and uh, this is where uh, people, uh, you know, get really, really depressed, abnormally so, uh, if they don't get enough light and it's a simple cure, you know, <laughs> you just get out in the sunshine and play. That's right. And, uh, so yeah, there's, I think we're realizing more and more that lights extremely important to, uh, to living organisms and probably in ways we haven't even figured out yet. Um, you know, they're using laser light uh, more and more for uh, different types of cancer cures and things like this. So, I think there's a lot of discoveries to be made there still. I went to uh, some caves in Puerto Rico, one of the deepest ones in the world, and I remember you had to basically take a get get into a boat down there. And what impressed me the most is that I found flora and fauna, right? And we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of feet under the the the, the soil, and yet we have life. How is that possible without light? Well, they've adapted over long periods of time. You know, they've looked at uh, some of these salamanders, for example. Right. Um, and it takes a long time. You just can't take a regular salamander and have them start to become albino or almost clear right. like some of these others are. So uh, they've adapted. And yet, you know, 99.9% of uh, life lives near the surface of the earth. And that uh, that life is even more sensitive to the comings and going of light, if you will, visible light. But of course, light, what all light is, is it's, uh, it's the electromagnetic spectrum uh, and light coming from the sun, you know, is this massive spectrum, everything from infrared to ultraviolet, there's x-rays, gamma rays, radio waves, uh, you know, they're even discovering uh, light from other stars, alpha waves, uh, that there's an interplay of uh, subtle uh, energies here that, again, we're still just scratching the surface on what it all means and how it all works. That was my next question. If our sun affects life in this solar system, 
but there are other stars in, in other solar systems and even galaxies. Are those stars affecting what happens in this corner of the galactic, uh, let's call it galactic neighborhood? Prior to 
about where we are now because we, you know, Einstein and quantum physicists and, uh, you know, we, we first discovered a few hundred years ago that things are made out of molecules and we discovered they're made out of atoms and those atoms are made of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And that stuff is kind of made out of nothing, you know, quarks. And there's really almost no matter there. It's 99.999% just nothing. And uh, so some of these uh, these truths coming from the Hori Vedas are starting to ring uh, with, you know, real uh, resonance to us nowadays that that there might be a lot more to life than we think there is. Do you think if astronauts are able to outer space, the absence of magnetosphere, could that be affecting them? Uh, yeah. Yeah, they are, there is some evidence of that for, uh, you know, certain uh, uh, spacecraft that go have gone very far. Um, and I believe that uh, some use uh, what... Negative ions, negative ions to, right yeah to try to to offset the effect uh, that that you know sort of speaks to valerie hunt's work she's the was a physiologist at ucla she's retired now but um she did a study of people there in the mu room which is a faraday cage I, that's one of these cages uh rooms made out of a bunch of uh metal Uh, layers in the walls and the reason they do that is because they're they're working on very sensitive electronics um, and they don't want uh, interference from you know all the radio waves and television waves microwaves that are just going through the air at any given time and what she found that was people that spent extensive periods of time completely shut off in one of these uh, cages Uh, we're also somewhat separated from, you know, the natural electromagnetic soup that we live in, if you will, for lack of a better term. Sure. Uh, you know, it's part of the magnetosphere, but that's the only part that we can uh, define. And uh, when they're separated from it too long, they get uh, sad. You know, they, they're, they don't know why they're feeling down and depressed and a couple of her subjects just broke out crying and didn't know why. Uh, but that's, that's what happens. And so this may be one of the factors that, uh, that plays into a hypothesis of how this rise and fall of the ages might work. Perhaps, you know, when we're closer to this other star or a certain point in space, we're sort of getting a good positive influence something's affecting our ionosphere mag magnetosphere etc in a positive way and when we're too far away we're we're not getting enough of whatever that is and uh it's sort of like being in a faraday cage you know we're separated from it to some degree so none of this has been worked out mel but it's uh it's all sort of interesting uh hypothesis to which which seems a little bit contradicting because as you know we have uh, all these uh waves, radio waves around us, cell phones, Wi-Fi, radio waves of all sorts. And some people say that that's, uh, that's not positive, that, that you should try to be away from that and not close to these all the time. So do you, do you lend credence to, to the fact that cell phone towers being close to you can have a negative effect on, on you? Uh, I, I don't know. You know, I, I haven't seen any 
absolutely affirmative studies, although intuitively, you know, I don't want to live under power lines right, right. right next to a cell phone tower. It just doesn't seem right. Yeah. But uh, the science there is is still uh, early. You know, I, I would say that uh, just the the natural effect of our the way our sun interacts, the uh, sort of twangs the magnetosphere, if, if you will, is far, far, far more powerful than some of these uh, little things that you know have a real uh, short impedance that will fall off quickly. And uh, you know, so there's other things might exist, but it's sort of like you know we're in the ocean or out of the ocean, and if you happen to be in the ocean, you sprinkle a few grains of sand does that really affect have as much effect as being in or out of the ocean it doesn't hardly doesn't matter right and you know, a few minutes ago we were talking about the uh, light and depression uh, in doing research here i found some commonalities uh, uh, alaska washington state some of the the highest areas with incidences of, of uh, suicide not including uh, but areas that were affected by the economy are all with the same. They're uh, dark, gloomy, in a dark, gloomy day. That's when you see most of these suicides as opposed to during fine weather. Could people just get depressed by the mere sight of a dark, gloomy day? Or is it the lack of solar rays or maybe vitamin D? Well, the the people that study uh, seasonal affective disorder uh, would say that it's uh, actually the lack of, of light. And I, I I'm not sure if that's UV or, you know, what, what uh, portion of the spectrum, um, but uh, I, I think it's the light itself. And, and, you know, maybe the light is interacting, of course, with our chemistry, but yeah, the effect is real. There's no doubt about that. The science is real solid. So if the sun is responsible for, for a lot of these, uh, you know, the ascension and so on, when there's an alignment of planets and perhaps a planet or more are blocking the sun from the earth, could that moment of, can we say, interruption of electromagnetic rays have an effect on our planet as a living being and therefore life? Uh, you know, there's probably some uh, minor effect there. I, you know, first of all, I know almost nothing about astrology, so I'll be the first to admit, uh, you know, if, if there's something going on there, it's, I just don't understand it. Uh, although I think there's some validity to that as a higher age science, um, we don't understand it yet. And um, so, you know, I just don't know enough to, to really comment on it, I guess, Mel. That's fine. That's fine. And uh, once again, going back to the astronauts, if we leave the, let's call it a cocoon, we call the magnetosphere, uh, would that have an effect on humans? And I just am trying to understand what physical effect magnetism has on the human body per se um that's again a new science but there are a couple of uh, uh technologies there that are taking advantage of magnetism and one of them i, I actually uh have some experience within our fan family it's called transcranial magnetic stimulation oh explain that Okay, so you've talked about that on your show. So that's a, um, it's a, a magnet that's uh, held outside the skull, so there's no physical contact there. Okay. Uh, and they began by um, 
treating people that had depression. And so much like, you know, this, this, where we're talking about how the electromagnetic spectrum of the sun light can, can affect uh, people. So too does, uh, there appear to be something in the, the magnetic, uh, field. And so, um, if they can get this pulse going at the right rate, they seem to be able to uh, stop people's depression for anywhere from three to six months. And then they need this uh, magnet again, unless they've had, you know, significant other changes going on in their life. Uh, and that's it's actually used as a methodology now. I don't know if it's reimbursed, uh, reimbursed by insurance companies it's that far along, but. My son had a little difficulty. I have four sons, one of them with a little bit of depression. And uh, he, uh, he, we saw a doctor here at UCI, University of California, Irvine, who specialized in this transcranial magnetic stimulation. And first they kind of read all the brain waves. And he said he found that uh, my son Alex did indeed have sort of some little echoes in his brain waves. He said, this is kind of unusual. And he said, you want your brainwaves to look like this. And he showed patterns of, you know, people that meditate. They've got these really mm. clear, sweet uh, patterns in their brain. And uh, and so he then used the, uh, the TMS. And uh, after just one session, he, he could say, hey, look at this. And those little echoes were out. Alex felt better. And, uh, you know, hasn't had it since. And it's been like six months or something like that. So Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, no medication whatsoever. Uh, none. That no. is. Matter you, of fact, he was on some medication before that that wasn't working. That was, I was going to say, probably wasn't working. It was probably making him addicted to it. And now it's gone. That's incredible. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying it works for everybody that way, but that's my one personal experience. And uh, it, it sure worked for Alex. Name the device again. I want our listeners who probably are trying to write it down immediately because, as we know, it is so prevalent out there. And, of course, there's always medication for everything. And on this show, we try to find alternative ways to uh, address these things. Right. It's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. Uh, so it goes by the initials TMS. And you'll often see a small R before the capital uh, TMS. And I think that means rapid because uh, they, they do a rapid uh, pulsing that goes trans through cranial, the skull, and it's magnetic uh, pulsing that's that's going on. And I'm not even going to speculate uh, if you go to places like Florida and even Arizona, where you have probably 70, 80% of all TV commercials are medication. You'll never see this machine advertised, would you think? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it's no conspiracy. I just think that we're we're moving from the darker ages to lighter ages, and we're just discovering things like this, you know, uh, and it's going to take a while. That's right. Uh, you know, Walter, many researchers say that we have forgotten our past. Some say it's post-traumatic stress disorder from the last cataclysm. Uh, if, you don't, if we don't know our past, can we know where we really are and where we're going? What's your take on this? Boy, you're, you're making a great point there, Mel. It's, uh, I, I was reading about uh, people that have, um, uh, you know, where they hit their head and they lose their memory. Uh, sure, amnesia. Yeah, amnesia. And they, 
they found in studying these people that not only did they forget the past, but then they're unable to plan for the future. And if you think about it, it's pretty logical. You know, if you're driving along in your car and you suddenly don't know where you've come from, it, it's really hard to then realize where you're going or if you do know where you're going, why you're going, you know, because you have no context in which to put this thing in. And, and that is, in my opinion, what has sort of happened to us as a human race. Uh, when we went through the, the great dark ages and so much knowledge uh, was wiped out, uh, that we're like this amnesiac patient. You know, we've forgotten our past and we've kind of put one together, which is really sort of crude and denigrating, if you will, to ancient uh, civilizations. And uh, based on that, you know, we see uh, what for a lot of people isn't really a rosy future. You know, they're scared of of technology. There's a lot of anxiety and angst out there nowadays about what's going to happen to the world, the economy and things like that. Right. And yet if we listen to the myth and folklore of some of these ancient cultures, uh, they tell a beautiful story, magnificent story, you know, that that mankind is really, uh, you know, made in the image and likeness of God. I mean, it's, heck, it's Jesus himself says, ye are God, these things that I do, ye shall do also, and greater right. things. Exactly. That's and that's great, what they yeah. teach in the higher ages, ye are gods. And then you, we go down and we forget that until we realize, oh, we're just a body and we're at risk. And, and uh, you know, things get so dark there for a while. And... The uh, but the ancient mythology uh, has a much different story. And can I tell you about the Babylonians in this respect? Of course. Okay, there's a a great uh, researcher. As you can probably tell, I spend a lot of my time just just figuring out what other researchers are doing as I'm sure. piece together this story. Uh, his name is Stefan Mall. He spoke at Stanford. The presidential lectures there, and. Uh, he is the foremost Assyrianologist in the world. He can look at a, a cuneiform tablet uh, and and come pretty close to reading it, if you will. You know, he's a linguist, and um, and there's hundreds of thousands uh, of these cuneiform tablets that have been uh, uh, found, but only probably a thousand of them have been read. And it's because most of them are broken and most of them we really don't understand the language. They're in different dialects and things like this. And, but he did uh, uh, read some of them and trace some of the words through history. And he found some amazing things. One is he found that when uh, the uh, Akkadians about 3,000 years ago uh, were writing uh, on some of these tablets. And by the way, they knew how to make paper because some of the tablets talk about it. Uh, so they're, they're writing on keeping it in clay for some other purpose. In case of cataclysm. Yeah, I, I don't know. But uh, anyway, it worked, didn't it? Of course. <laughs> it was paper, it would have been gone. Yeah. But anyway, they're, they're, they're practicing archaeology and they're finding things that are 3,000 years older uh, in their time, so about 6,000 years for us as we're talking now. And uh, when they do find something, they're very careful to uh, put it back together uh, 
as exactly like it stood. They they use the word they don't want to deviate more than an eyelash. Hmm. And it's it's because they see some value in what their ancestors have built. Uh, something important is there for them. And and then another thing he finds is that uh, they're they're talking. They they're very familiar with the cycle, and they know that the uh, golden age is behind them, and they know that they're, they're going into a darker age. And so you know maybe that's one reason they're building things out of stone and putting writings on clay tablets. Um, and so they're talking about that. And one of the most amazing things he found was in tracing uh, their word for a past, he found out that it has become our word for future. Hmm. And their word for future has become our word for past. Almost like inverted. Right. In other words, for them, the past behind them was the beautiful place that was the golden age. When they find something from that era, they want to emulate it and keep it like that. They you know, that's the age of the gods for them. They want to try to hang on to that as long as possible, but they know their civilizations go downhill. So if you will, that's kind of like the future for them, even though in time it's behind them. And for us, heck, who wants to go back to the dark ages? You know, 500,000 years ago, they're crucifying people in the streets, human sacrifice in in the Americas, uh, plagues raging around, pestilence around the world, you know, virtually everything's destroyed. Uh, we don't want to go back in time. We want to go forward because we're closer to the next golden age by going forward. And so it's so interesting that uh, this is reflected in the uh, language of some of these ancient cultures. And of course, when we think about when we look at all this, a lot of Western society says this is just mythology or, or mythos which in Greek is the word that mythos actually means historic events that were sworn to be accurate and true by priests and kings. It was an affidavit of accuracy in history. So we have to start demythologizing history, but we have to take our one and only intermission, Walter. Tell us how to get in touch with your work, your book, and the upcoming conference. I'll be there, and I hope those who are listening can be there too. Sure. Uh, the conference coming up is our big one where we gather a bunch of researchers together to tell this story of the cycle of the ages. It's called the Conference on Procession and Ancient Knowledge, and it'll be held in Sedona this fall, uh, end of September, early October. And uh, people can get information by going to the website uh, cpaconline.com. That's C-P-A-K online.com. What a great location for this type of topic, uh, Walter. Yeah, yeah, we're going to have fun. So I'll tell you more about it when we get back from the break. Sure. Folks, don't go anywhere. We have so much more to discuss with Walter Cruttenden. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy. 
Claude Swanson, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. 